I'm Harriet Smith and welcome to Dietitian Cafe where we will be discussing the world of nutrition and dietetics from studying to academia, clinical to industry and the NHS to freelancing. Today we have with us Alex Ballard. Alex is a specialist Band 6 community dietitian working in West Essex as part of the Essex Partnership University NHS Foundation Trust. She graduated from Coventry University in 2015 and her current role involves community home visits, specialist diabetes clinics, structured diabetes education, GP practice and inpatient work at a community hospital. Alex enjoys using social media to share ideas, raise a profile of dietetics and connect with other healthcare professionals. Her interests include cooking, the environment and exercise. Hello Alex, thanks for joining us today. Hello, thank you so much for having me. Thanks for joining us. So can you begin by telling us a little bit about where your interest in nutrition and dietetics stems from? Yeah, of course. Um, This is probably quite a long-winded story because it starts when I was quite young. Um, So as a child, I was really, really sporty, um, in particular things like tennis and swimming. Um, And so from that young age, I had coaches talking to me about the use of food and fluids to help with things like sporting performance um, and things like recovery. Um, So even from that young age, I was already thinking about how much of an impact nutrition has on how your body functions. Um, I then went off to secondary school um, and discovered food technology, which I absolutely loved and was just my favourite subject ever. I spent all of my time doing that. Um, And that taught me that, you know, I was really interested in different ingredients, in cooking, in developing recipes. um, And that's still a main hobby of mine today. Um, And then I chose to do food technology as one of my GCSE subjects um, and decided to do for my final project a lunchbox item for somebody on a low potassium diet, um, which I think at at the age of kind of 15, 16 was quite unusual. Um, But from doing the researching behind that, I realised, wait a minute, it's not just how food and drink have this big impact on sporting performance, but actually it has this huge impact on how we treat and prevent and cure different health conditions and disease states. So it really started there. Um, And then with the help of my mum and dad, started researching loads of different careers in that field um, and went and did loads of work experience. Um, So I went and did some work experience with my local community team um, and watched them doing structured diabetes groups, um, which is lovely because it's now the exact team I work with doing the exact same courses. Um, So that's really nice. Um, I had some work experience with the nutritionist at Tesco Um, I did work experience with environmental health in the council um, and did some work on kind of food stands and stalls at different food uh, public health events. Um, So I got loads of experience, but just thought, no, dietetics is, you know, for me um, and started researching into different universities, really. Um, So, yeah, a bit of a long winded story, but from a young age, it's been a massive passion. Yeah. And obviously you still enjoy cooking today and that that um, you're applying that knowledge to the community patients that you're working with. Um, yeah exactly exactly I love cooking love developing different recipes and I think it's good to get people excited about that we want people cooking from scratch as much as possible so Mm. yeah Mm. so how did you end up studying dietetics at Coventry University was it an obvious choice for you did you look at different universities yeah um so as I said after doing all of that work experience I then started looking at kind of all of the unis in the UK that offered dietetics as a degree um and went round most of them. So at the time, I didn't really want to do that, but I am glad my parents got me to, um, because actually a lot of the universities that I originally thought I'd be really interested in, um, from looking at the brochures, when I got there were not necessarily the ones that kind of clicked straight away. Um, And Coventry was very much the case like that. Um, So I went to Coventry not thinking I was that interested in it, but actually when I got there, it felt right. Um, it's a very small university, well, relatively small university. So it's not a campus, but all of the buildings are quite close together. So it had a nice homely campus feel about it, um, just in the middle of a city. Um, and everyone was really friendly and everyone there seemed to, to really enjoy being there. Um, but because of the actual course, what attracted me to the dietetics degree there um, was that they just used this big array of different teaching methods to get the syllabus across over the four years. Um, so, of course, they had lectures and they had lab work, um, but they have kitchens there. So there were loads of practical cooking sessions. Um, one term they took us out to larger catering kitchens outside of the university. 
Um, they have mock hospital wards there for all of the healthcare professionals, um, loads of different ways of monitoring anthropometric measurements. So it's just really, really varied. Um, also, once I got there, something that was really good was that they spent a lot of time trying to make sure everyone got a wide range of experiences on their placements. Um, so I did a placement in community. I had one in a small hospital and one in a really large acute teaching hospital. Um, so I just got a, a wide range of experience in different specialisms, which really helped me when coming to choose a job and apply for jobs. And did you have an idea when you graduated that community dietetics was what you wanted to do? How did that all evolve? Yeah, I think coming out of university, I would have been more than happy going into acute or community. I really enjoyed all of my placements. Um, but I think unintentionally, because of work I did whilst I was at university with um, Age UK and volunteering at a food bank, actually that steered me into community work really nicely. Um, I applied for lots of different jobs and one of the first ones I applied for happened to be a local community post and I was just really lucky that I got that. Um, so mm -hmm. I fell into community that way and just it's, you know, really suited me and I really love it. So I've stayed. <laughs> uh, yeah, and, and it's great you found an area of dietetics that you really do enjoy. And we'll talk more about what your role um, involves later on in the podcast. Mm -hmm, um, just going back to what you mentioned earlier, you've done a lot of volunteering with Age UK and food banks. Can you tell us a bit more about what that work involved and also how you're applying what you learnt during that volunteering to your current work in the community? Yeah, of course. Um, so the four years that I was at university, I did work, as you said, for AGK as a home helper um, and volunteered at a local food bank. Um, and unintentionally, as I said before, I think it had a big impact on shaping me as a dietitian because obviously it was alongside whilst I was training. Um, a big thing I took from both was just how important that social assessment of every patient is. Um, so it's really obviously important for us to look at things like their weight and their medical background, their diet histories. But actually, if we're not looking at that social side, so things like um, who is giving them that food and drink, who's providing it, uh, their cooking facilities, their skills, their budgets, um, their social support network. If we're not looking at all of those, actually, it's really difficult to put a plan in place that's going to be realistic and going to be effective. Um, so that was a big thing I took um, from both. Um, thinking about Age UK specifically, so that was the home helper role. And that's essentially helping elderly clients in the community with anything that's not personal care. So things like food shopping and cooking, uh, laundry, uh, cleaning, doing the bills, that kind of thing. Um, and I think a big message I learned from doing that role for the four years was how important it is to access that patient's wider support network. Um, so it's all good and well working directly with the patient one on one. But as long as we have the consent to do so from the patient, I think it's really important to relay that plan um, and talk to the family and friends and neighbours and carers, anyone that's involved in that person's food, really food and drink intake. Um, and just from my own experience, by putting in that little bit more time initially to do that, actually, the plans tend to work much better. They're much more effective. Um, and in the longer run, you may not have to spend as much time reviewing them because the plan's working well. Um, from a food bank perspective, uh, volunteering there was really, really eye-opening, and I'm so glad I did that. Um, I think the main things I learned from it was, firstly, never ever make assumptions about anyone's situation. Um, so I think going into the food bank, I may have made assumptions about who would need to access emergency food supplies, um, but actually, in reality, there were people there who I wouldn't have expected to need a food bank. So people in full-time employment or nurses, for example. Um, so I think it is important not to make any assumptions. Um, it's also incredibly important that as dietitians, we're able to adapt any advice to meet someone's budget and financial situation. Um, so just as we would adapt advice for um, different health conditions and patient preferences and how we need to look at the same sustainability of what someone's eating now, we also need to be able to adapt it for financial reasons too. Um, so that's really important. Um, and then with the food bank, I was really fortunate because, um, because I'd been doing work for them for four years, the university let me do my dissertations and my final year project based on that food bank, um, which was brilliant. Um, and my research was essentially looking at the main causes for people needing to access that food bank that year. So in 2015, I think it was. 
Um, and interestingly enough, looking at the statistics that the Trussell Trust have published most recently, the causes are still exactly the same. Um, so things like income, um, things like benefit delays, benefit cuts are all them kind of three main causes that people are still needing to go to a food bank, um, which is important for us all to be aware of. Yeah, definitely. And I think you're right. We shouldn't be making any assumptions um, as dietitians about who might be accessing this, this level of support. In terms of the patients that you're working with in the community at the moment, um, if you identify that they perhaps need some additional support with cooking or they're lonely, for example, are there particular organisations that you will signpost them towards? Yeah, so we've got a particular organisation that rather than doing a social assessment, for example, I think we call them care navigators possibly, but don't, don't take me definite on that one. Um, but referrals, that is basically for people that don't need personal care but need some form of assistance in the community to help them stay well and fit at home. Um, and that includes things like cooking skills or possibly just helping to get food shopping. Um, and those services do exist. Sometimes it just involves a bit of digging to find out who provides them. Um, but speaking to places like uh, places where you go to refer to, they would help you to source that. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that's really useful for people who are listening to know. Um, and I just want to um, go back to what you mentioned earlier. So you said that during your placement, you um, worked in a variety of different clinical settings. So you've not only worked in the community, which is where you're working now, but you also spent time working in an acute trust. I think lo lots of dietitians, um, there's, there's often a school of thought that some people work in one area and other people work in the other. Um, do you think there's sort of a role for overlap between community and acute? Is acute something you think you might go into in the future or are you very much set in stone that community is for you? Yeah, I think that's a really good question because a lot of people do treat them quite separately. Um, even at university, people would be saying, I only want to go into acute or only want to go into community. Um, when actually I feel that we're all trained registered qualified dietitians and a lot of it overlaps um, and is interchangeable so I don't think we should be as blanket as, as saying it's one or the other. Um, there's clearly very obvious differences between the two um, so for example in the community we potentially have access to more um, that patient has more access to different foods and drinks so maybe things like food first is more accessible in the community sometimes um, we also have access to a much wider range of supplements and feeds and things like that, whereas in the hospital they're restricted to things like the contracts with nutritional companies, they're restricted to what the, um, the catering systems can provide for food. Um, and the other side of that, you know, things like in the ward setting, they're going to have um, access to daily observations, uh, daily bloods, they're going to have the wider MDT team within the same building. Um, whereas in community you are more isolated um, and you don't necessarily have all that up-to-date information right at the right at your fingertips um, but as I said I think all of those skills are interchangeable um, and at the moment I'm very set with being in community work but actually I think you know if down in the future if a job came up that really interests me I would like to think that I could be able to go to it and have a good chance of getting it as well so I think it is interchangeable um, Definitely. I think um, mm. if you'd asked that question maybe when I was studying, mm. I would have said that one of the main differences between the two are that acute, um, acute dietitians would see patients that are much sicker and much more complex, um, which is still going to be the case to some extent. Um, but we have noticed in the community a massive change with who's being referred um, and patients now are much, much sicker at home and patients that are much more complicated with multiple health conditions. Um, so again, I don't think that's as much of a difference anymore. I think that bridge is, is narrowing. Mm. Um, so yeah, there are obvious differences, but I think it's interchangeable. And I don't think people should feel like if they go down one path, they can't then then go back on it and go down to acute work or community. Yeah, definitely. I think you know the skills we have as dietitians are cross-transferable to lots definitely. of different sectors, whether that's the NHS, the community, freelance, industry. There's, there's so many options available to us. Yeah. Um, in terms of the reasons for community patients being referred to, what, what are the most common themes that you've noticed? Yeah, so I guess this is incredibly variable. And I guess any patient that you would assume or, or does need any kind of dietetic intervention would be referred to us. Um, but very common uh, patient groups that we see um, for home visits, for example, we see a lot of people that are malnourished or at high risk of malnutrition. 
Um, a lot of people with dysphagia, so possibly we need to look at modified textured diets or thickened fluids with speech and language teams. Um, also a lot of advice for promoting um, skin health or promoting wound healing, um, so things like pressure sores or post-surgery. Um, our home menstrual feeding caseload is quite varied, um, but a lot of patients may have neurological conditions like MND, um, they might have had a stroke and that's resulted in them having um, problems with their swallow. Um, and we also have quite a lot of patients with head and neck cancer or they've, or they've had head and neck cancer. Um, the clinics that we do, so we have both general GP practice clinics and specialist diabetes clinics. So it's a big mixture amongst those two. Um, but we see patients with both type 1 and type 2 diabetes, uh, pre-diabetes, um, people for lots of heart health reasons, so things to do with reducing cholesterol or reducing blood pressure, um, things like gastro referrals, so people with IBS or diverticulitis, celiac disease or different types of allergies or intolerances. Um, and then we're really fortunate because in our team we have a specialist gastro team um, who are all trained as FODMAP dietitians as well. Um, so if we see patients in the community clinics for, say, IBS, but the first line advice isn't working, we can then refer them into the gastro team as well. Um, and we also have a learning disability service. Um, so we have dietitians covering that, um, which means that adults with learning disabilities in our area um, can be seen by the dietitians at home rather than in clinics. Um, and we find that's really helpful because we can allocate them more time. We can understand their social situation better. Um, and also it, it tends to be that a lot of patients prefer to be seen in their home environment where they're more comfortable, opposed to bringing them to a clinic where possibly they've got bad experiences. Maybe they've had blood tests or there's been needles and things like that and they don't feel comfortable there. Yeah, yeah. Um, so big, big wide range. <laughs> yeah, and that's a great example of patient-centred care. Um, and some people would perhaps argue that in the community you're able to give a bit more of a, a tailored approach because you have longer with the patient is that true or is, is that a myth do you find that your caseload is just so so huge that you don't have a lot of time with your patients yeah I think I do end up probably spending a bit more time with patients than maybe when I was doing my placements on acute wards but I'm not sure that time is actually there I think it's just that once we're in someone's home and you're faced with lots of other things going on and lots of family members or friends or neighbors that are also there it does end up taking quite a long time and you can't necessarily walk in and then walk straight out again um, so we do we do have that time. It's just whether or not that then hinders other parts of our role. Um, and I think the only real way around that is is really trying to prioritise things. Um, so prioritise and then reprioritise, reprioritise. Um, and we try and log things like our referral statistics to try and highlight that actually we are spending all this time with patients. We're getting way more referrals year on year. Um, but our staffing levels are not necessarily reflecting that. So mm. I think we do get that opportunity, but it may then have a knock-on effect to another aspect of our role. Yeah, so it sounds like that's a big challenge for community dietitians in the NHS at the moment. And yeah. uh, in a moment, we'll talk about some of the other challenges that you face in your community role. Yeah. Um, just before we go on to that, you mentioned earlier that you, you work closely with speech and language therapists with some of your patients, particularly stroke patients. Um, how does that MDT approach work when you are in the community as opposed to in an acute hospital where everybody is perhaps working from the same building? Yeah, um, and I think that's probably one of the challenges, to be honest, of, of working as a registered dietitian in the community um, is that you don't necessarily or you don't really have that access to the wider MTT team right away. It's not in that building. It's not right where you are in that patient's home um, or in the clinic room. Um, however, I think it's just worth remembering that it does still exist. It is still there. It's just that you may need to go away and make phone calls or send emails or arrange an MDT meeting with GPs and speech and language and district nurses etc um, so it's remembering it's still there it's just maybe not as accessible um, and then because it's not as accessible it's just making sure that you do access your whole support network as well so you're not even though you might be isolated on that visit you are not on your own there is a whole wider team there um, that we do have really good access to our team's fantastic. So I was just going to ask you a bit more about who your professional support network is. If you're out in the community, you know, visiting patients in homes, um, 
do you see your colleagues regularly do you have regular meetings how do you make sure that you feel well supported yeah our team is brilliant though they're really really supportive and really friendly um, we try to always make sure that we have at least one person in the office at one time so there's always someone there to contact um, we've all been given work mobile phones so again we all, all can contact each other quite quickly um, and on those phones we have access to our emails instantly as well so if you email the team you're likely to get a response quite quite quickly um, we have a lot of meetings amongst the community team but then amongst the whole team we have a monthly meeting where we can discuss any concerns um, or talk through particular patient case studies and things like that um, I'm also really fortunate because I'm still very close to a group of friends from university who are all dietitians. Um, and all in completely different areas and specialisms. Um, so we have a WhatsApp group and we constantly ask each other questions on there as well or just feedback different things from events to each other. So we use that as a lot of support. Um, but a lot of people use things like the BDA specialist groups. Um, even Facebook have a lot of groups now set up by dietitians where you can access yeah. support. Yeah. Um, so there are things out there. Um, it's never feeling like you are isolated. It's just maybe not accessible instantly yeah and it's about sort of proactively seeking out that Definitely, support yeah. network as well yeah in terms of your own um, CPD or professional development as a busy NHS community dietitian how do you find time to stay up to date with the profession and how do you regularly update your own professional knowledge yeah I think it is it's really difficult for anyone whether they're part-time or full-time to make sure you're keeping up to date with the kind of ever-evolving world of dietetics um I've found that one way is, is actually scheduling in that time, so being quite strict with your organisation, having a timetable and saying at the end of the day for 30 or 60 minutes I am going to do some form of professional development work, um, whether that's reading one of the nutrition magazine articles, I've started trying to write for some of those, so doing a little bit of research or starting to write one of those articles. Um, I'm also quite active on Instagram now, um, so actually doing research for those posts has been a massive thing to help me with um, CPD. Um, there's loads of things online as well, so there's lots of free webinars and online CPD um, uh, things that you can complete. Um, I also, because I'm quite fortunate being community, I'm in my car quite a lot, so I use that time to listen to podcasts that are based around you know, evidence-based practice for around nutrition or diet. And again, that's been a massive help to me because it's time that otherwise I was just listening to the radio and not really using it effectively. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, hopefully our Dietitian Cafe podcast will be useful. Exactly, for your, that's next on the list. Yeah. <laughs> um, so just going back to the sort of typical work that you're doing in your community role at the moment, can you talk us through what a day in you know, a day in your shoes looks like mm -hmm. in terms of where you are, the kinds of patients that you're seeing and what you're doing? Yeah, of course. Um, I think that one of the beauty of community work is that it's so incredibly varied. Um, and in our roles in particular, I wouldn't say one day within a week, probably even in a month is identical. It is so, so varied, which is great. Um, as kind of a, a, a typical day. So for example, this morning I got up and commuted to a, um, a GP practice um, and I took a specialist diabetes clinic. So that's seeing in kind of 15 minutes appointments, people with type one or type two diabetes, um, along with the GP, uh, specialist uh, practice nurse and a healthcare assistant. So, and then the other types of clinics I would do in the morning are the general GP practice clinics. They always tend to be in the morning. Um, and then at the end of the clinic, I would try and timetable in maybe a few telephone calls to patients or carers or relatives. Um, or I would potentially go and visit a patient at home. So maybe if we had a home entral feeding patient that's really close to that practice, I'd timetable in to go and see them. Um, and then in the afternoon, I may be doing some kind of structured education. So that might be the expert diabetes courses, so the six-week courses for people with type 2 diabetes. Um, it might be carbohydrate and insulin management. Um, or it might be things like cardiac rehab, groups for COPD. Um, we do groups talks at the hospice now that's close to our hospital. Um, we just lots and lots of different different talks. Um, if I wasn't doing that, then I may be on the wards um, because we also cover some community hospitals, so possibly on the wards instead. Um, mm. 
but then yeah and then in between on my commute home listening to podcasts trying to fit in some trying form to stay of up to date with, yeah, yeah cpd yeah <laughs> I'm, I'm curious to hear how you um manage your note taking in a community position is that all done by hand or do you do it online when you get home type it up yeah so we um are all online all on an online system ever since i started there actually which is nice so i've not had to to change over um but it will be that as quickly as possible on that day we have to get those notes on the system um and that's the same system that all of the nurses the physios the speech and language ot's everyone use so we can access their notes as well um we've all been given a laptop a trust laptop um, and we have something called a dongle which is essentially a usb stick which gives you wi-fi um, so we can really upload those notes as quickly as possible um, and the aim is to get them on that day yeah yeah which is easier said than done I'm sure <laughs> it is yeah as long as I think we can have um 24 hours to get them on so of working day so and that probably links into my next question which is what are this what are some of the challenges that you face as a community dietitian working for the NHS yeah so I think this this main challenge is probably not specific just to dietitians but probably staff NHS staff altogether and that goes back to how we were saying um that there is this kind of lack of time or I guess the flip side of that is not enough staff to cover the caseload. Um, so I would say that's kind of the main main barrier that we come up against or the main challenge. Um, but as we were saying before, I think the, the most important thing to do is to always prioritise patients um, and to make sure that you are recording statistics or auditing referrals so that you can say to people higher up in the trust, actually, this is happening with our referrals. We do really need more staff. Um, and my manager's fantastic at doing that. Um, also trying to put business cases across to the people higher up, actually saying in other trusts they have um, employed, say, a food first dietitian, and this has had these results for, say, patient safety, patient care, um, being cost effective. So actually, would that be something we could do in this trust? Um, and just trying to be as efficient as possible with what you've got. So, um, for example, training up your admin staff or dietetic assistants to do elements of your role um, or developing resources that are going to help as well. Um, so we've developed um, must packs. So if we get referrals from nursing homes or care homes where they have a must score of naught or one and they've not been referred before, then we will send back a, a step-by-step plan with resources of what they should be doing for food first, um, ask them to monitor the patient, and then if there's no improvement after kind of one to two months, to refer them back, and then we would get involved either by phone or going to visit them. Um, and that's been a really, you know, t- a way of managing mm. that time. Um, so there's there's just kind of ways around it, but, but the referrals do go up year upon year. We've got more home mental feeding patients, and there's more... Um, patients registered at each GP practice as well so there's more patients trying to access those clinics we've got um, but it is just trying to prioritize manage it and continuously highlight that it's an issue and that you need more support. So um, it's probably difficult for me to ask you to pluck a number from thin air but roughly how many patients would be on a community dietitian's caseload? Um, again it does vary just depending on what other aspects of that role that dietitian's doing. So, for example, if they're only doing community work, it's going to be much higher than somebody that also does diabetes clinics or structured education, that kind of thing. Sure. Um, but we may have, you know, something like 80 patients on someone's caseload at once, but then you also have things like the nursing homes, the care homes that are not in that caseload. Um, and all of us do something else outside of just seeing patients at home. We have clinics, we have structured education, so it can be, you know, it can be massive. And are you in charge of your own schedule in terms of deciding when to follow patients up and and structuring your week or is that predetermined for you? Yeah, so in our trust, we do that ourselves at the moment. So it is really important to be super organised. So you will ring up patients yourself and book them in or speak to family and and figure out what's going on. Um, You will speak to GP practices and give them clinic dates and find out when there's rooms available. So a lot of time does need to be spent doing that. Um, I tend to find that it's easier if I spend my like an hour on a Friday doing that for the next week and then I'm not trying to do it throughout Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, etc. Um, so that it's it's more planned. Um, we are trying to go over a little bit in the future because we're all online now to make sure that, uh, say, admin staff, if a relative or a patient rings up, they could look on our timetable and say, well, actually, Alex has a slot at this time next week. Would you like it? And then they can book them in too. Mm. Um, 
another way I find helps me just to manage it is when I see a patient at home I then book in their review there and then rather than Mm. it coming around to a month later I need to see them and you need to timetable that time in to ring them and book it in yeah Um, so just being proactive really (laughs) yeah definitely a good idea when you're so busy um and in terms of um, training other healthcare professionals in the community setting, I think you mentioned to me before that you actually have a designated member of staff in your team who works with care homes. Yeah. Is, that, is that the case? Yeah, so she's not directly in our team, but uh, a lady, a dietitian who used to work in our team, actually, so we have really close links to her, um, now works as a medicines management dietitian in the CCG, which is based at the same hospital as us. Um, and luckily, we have great connections to her. She's lovely, so it works really well. Um, and one aspect of her role she's very very busy but one aspect of her role has been doing a food first um, food first in the community in the nursing homes and care homes especially Um, and so her and a team of pharmacists have been doing a lot of training around food first um, how care homes can fortify foods at the kitchen level or at the unit level um, recipes for different milkshakes and juice drinks and puddings that are going to be as high in calories as, say, some of the supplements. Um, so she's done an awful lot of work with that. Um, and then our team work alongside her to provide must training as well to um, throughout the year um, for things like the carers and the nurses at these particular places. Um, so they may all come to our hospital on a set day to do a morning of must training, for example. And in your experience, have you identified any gaps in knowledge of allied health professionals who are working in the community? Do you think there are areas that, as dietitians, you could help to address in the future? Yeah, I think definitely it causes quite a lot of confusion, especially the must side of things. So actually allocating must scores and calculating must scores. Um, We see a lot of uh, referrals that come through that are not done correctly, and that's from a wide range of of professionals, so GPs and district nurses and carers. Um, So that's definitely something that still needs a lot of training, um, 100%. And we often, as dietitians, describe MUST as being a very simple, easy-to-complete nutrition screening tool. So why is it causing so many issues, you know, amongst so many different healthcare professionals, in your opinion? Yeah, I think... I think it might be because there's so many different tools out there to try and help people calculate it as well. So um, although to us as dietitians they may look quite similar, if they've gone to four different training days and on four different training days they're given different information packs, different resources, it looks like something new and it can get quite confusing. Um, I also think without the correct resources it can actually be quite difficult if you've not had appropriate training or you're not doing it regularly enough to keep on top of it. Um, So, for example, calculating percentage weight loss is not necessarily the easiest thing to do if someone's not doing it all of the time. Um, People also get quite confused with the the end point of just adding up uh, the the numbers, and it may be that they say their BMI is 3, when actually it's the muscles 3, and I think people just get quite quite muddled with it. Um, But if that's not someone's main role and they're not doing it every single day, I think that's understandable as well. Yeah, and we Um, probably take for granted as dietitians just how often we are doing it. Um, And obviously practice practice makes perfect, hopefully. Yeah, yeah, you'd (laughs) You'd hope. hope. (laughs) Um, So so going back to uh, the work that you do in the community hospitals, can you tell me a bit more about the sorts of patients that you're seeing um, within the hospital and what kind of nutrition advice are you giving to them? Yeah, so a lot of the patients that get referred to me on some of the community wards are patients that have either been admitted directly from the community, maybe they're struggling at home, um, maybe there's an element of self-neglect there, um, and it's trying to get them back into a position where they are fit and well enough to be at home and to support themselves at home. Um, So a lot of that will be food-first advice, um, but making sure it is working with not just thinking about the patient on the ward at that time, it's very much thinking about what's going on with them at home because it's trying to get them home safely. Um, So again, talking to to relatives, setting up anything like um, kind of Meals on Wheels services that you have in your local area, um, things like if they've got neighbours that go in or friends that go in every lunchtime, involving them in plans because they're going to be really important in making sure they're encouraging the right things. Um, giving brochures for things like Wiltshire Farm Foods, Oak House Farms. Um, so making sure people are aware of all the different services they can access. Um, the other referral cause for people at those wards might, uh, might be that they've come from an acute hospital 
Um, so it may be that they were acutely unwell and they've started to recover, but they're not quite well enough to go home yet. Um, so again, it would then be communicating with the acute teams, getting all of that information and helping to support them to get home. Um, but a lot of it is food first advice. A lot is around uh, wound management um, and, and malnutrition. Mm. Um, so that's kind of a, a bulk reason we see patients on those wards. Um, but we also have a stroke rehab ward. Um, so that's heavily going to be for patients that are maybe considering a tube feed or possibly they've already had a tube placed and it's helping to um, teach them how to manage that when they're going to be going home. Um, and also introducing us because we will potentially be the community dietitians seeing them when they are at home with their tube as well, which is really nice to have that continuity of, of care. Um, if people haven't had something like a tube, we might get referred. They may be referred to us because they're having issues with their swallow, um, and again, that's going to be working really closely with speech and language um, to try and do things like modified diets and thickened fluids. Yeah, and that goes back to what we were talking about earlier about the importance of the multidisciplinary team approach, even in the community as well as the acute settings. Yeah. Um, the work that you do with diabetes in the community, um, there's lots of trends at the moment um, for movements like low, very low calorie diets and low carbohydrate approaches um, and there's, there's more and more evidence emerging to support these approaches. What are your views on them personally mm -hmm. and do they have a role in the community setting? Yeah um, I think it's a really really interesting area and I think it's very exciting that there's so much discussion around diet and diabetes now. Um, obviously, as dietitians, we're aware how much of an impact diet has on the treatment of diabetes. But I think it's really good that now doctors and other healthcare professionals, patients and just the general public are now acknowledging that and getting quite excited about it. So I think that's really good. Um, and we are now getting some longer term evidence of like larger participant groups to say, actually, these kind of things have been having a real positive impact on patients. Um, so, for example, things like the direct study, um, which is looking at a very low calorie liquid diet for, I think, 12 weeks and then this reintroduction of a healthy balanced diet. Um, they have shown that over 24 months that actually there's been a significant improvement in things like remission rates um, in type 2 diabetes, uh, reduction of medications, weight reduction, um, improvement of their lipid profile, improvement of blood pressure, even quality of life. Um, and there are smaller studies to also show the impact of, say, a lower carbohydrate diet on glycemic control. So I don't think we can ignore them, uh, these things, and the results are looking really, really good. Um, I think we just always need to be slightly critical about anything that's emerging and anything that's new. Um, and that's not to be pessimistic. It's just I think we need to do that with everything to make sure it's as safe as possible. Um, so the only things that are a bit of a question mark to me at the moment are... Are those patients being helped because they're on a particular low-calorie diet or a low-carb diet, or are they getting those results with their glucose levels because they're losing weight? Is it irrespective of how they're doing that? Mm. Um, similarly, is, is it because they're on a particular type of diet, or is it because they're having a lot more support um, and much more regular reviews and monitoring than a patient normally would in, say, an NHS setting? Um, so is it actually the support element of it or is it the particular diet they're following? Um, so I think there's still those to, to question. Um, and I think with any type of diet where you're restricting calories or restricting a particular food group, we do need to be careful and mindful about making sure a diet is still nutritionally adequate, especially if this is a longer term change for a patient. Um, so, for example, with something like the lower carb approach, um, we need to be mindful that that is probably going to make it harder to meet your fibre requirement. Um, and obviously people already struggle to get 30 grams of fibre a day. So are we just going to make that even harder for some patients? Um, and there may be particular patients with other health conditions where that could be more harmful. So if you've got someone with diverticulitis that's trying to avoid a flare up, um, or you've got someone with PCOS and you know that if they're constipated, then their estrogen levels are going to go up and that's going to have a knock-on effect to their testosterone levels, then again, it's being mindful, is that going to have a knock-on effect? Um, I think we, we also need to think about if, if some patient groups it might not be appropriate for, for example, um, I personally wouldn't advise that someone goes on a really restrictive diet if they've got a current or a past history of some kind of disordered eating or eating disorders. So I think it is really important we still 
acknowledge that there's not one diet that fits all. Um, but yes, the research is really interesting. It's just how do we then apply that into the NHS? Um, Definitely. I think it's a very exciting and emerging area. And you're right, each patient's different and we have to adapt our approach to them accordingly. So if you had an NHS community patient sat in front of you in your GP clinic who was adamant that they wanted to do a very low calorie diet, how would you typically handle that conversation with that patient definitely and I think uh, we get that all of the time especially with the structured education groups we get people coming in who want to know about how they can do a liquid diet for example because they've seen it in a newspaper article Um, I even had a lady this morning who said um, that she's now on a ketogenic diet and I kind of queried it a little bit and said well how many grams of carbs are you having and actually she was only using an app only having 20 grams a day so I mean that's a very low ketogenic diet as well Um, And actually, she was adamant that she wanted, she felt better on it, her results were coming out better, she was losing weight, and she felt that she could maintain it. So she was adamant she wanted to go down that route. Um, But I think sometimes it just goes back to um, education. So it was highlighting to her that actually a ketogenic diet is normally 50 grams and below, and a low-carb diet is more kind of 100 to 130 grams of carbs. So actually, just highlighting that to her showed her how restrictive she is being. Um, also going back to basics with general healthy eating um, because obviously if you're restricting your carbs that much very difficult to get things like your five a day um, and again enough fiber so it was going back to those basics and trying to help her and support her to still go down a low carb approach but in a way that she's still going to have a nutritionally balanced diet Mm. and that it's going to be maintainable for her as well. I'm curious to hear where some of your community, perhaps GP clinic patients, are obtaining their nutritional information from. Are you noticing any trends, particularly with the rise of nutrition advice on social media? Yeah, I think it stems a lot from there with lots of programs, especially in the last year, lots of um, documentaries on things like liquid diets for reversing type 2 diabetes. And I think that was a big trigger for a lot of people. Um, Then there's been a lot of uh, newspaper articles as well, which not always are based around the best evidence. Um, And then anyone that's on social media, that is a big one too. You've constantly got um, posts coming out about people that are, you know, either having smoothies all day to drink, that are so liquid diets or really low calorie approaches, or they're really cutting their carbs or saying that all carbs are bad, we shouldn't be having them. And I think a lot of the time people unfortunately listen to those maybe a lot more than what they do when they come to see us in in clinic, Um, especially if they think they're seeing through their social media really good changes for that individual, which may not actually be accurate. But social media, to caveat that, social media can play an important role, particularly as healthcare professionals having a voice on these platforms. We can influence the sorts of advice we're putting out there, making sure it's evidence-based. And I know you recently have um, been using Instagram to connect with other health professionals and get your messages out there. So can you tell our listeners a bit more about um, some of the considerations as a dietitian that you've had to think about um, when joining Instagram? Yeah, definitely. So we need to make sure um, that it meets our kind of code of conduct as a dietitian. Um, I need to make sure that everything I post is evidence-based or based around guidelines. Um, And a lot of work goes behind those posts, even that might seem quite simple to make sure that 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 advice that I'm giving out or just the tips that I'm giving out is evidence-based. I think it's also important to make sure that we are saying in these posts on social media that this is not going to suit absolutely everybody so I do make a a big point at the end of my post to say that actually you know we're all individual and one piece of advice is not going to be the same for someone else Um, and one of the big points of me starting that social media was just to raise the profile of dietitians um, and to say that actually we are there in the NHS and you know use us because we are we are there and in GP practices Um, And it's saying that actually you can, through your GP, get a referral to come and see us. So if you're unsure about something, rather than just taking everything for gospel online, go and see a registered dietitian. Um, But I just think it's, yeah, it's really important that it is evidence-based and that we're we're not implying that what we say on Instagram is going to help absolutely everybody. Mm -hmm. And how can people find you on Instagram? What's your platform called? So on Instagram, I am Alex Talks Diet. Alex Talks Diet. Okay, we'll definitely link to that in our show notes as well. Um, So whilst we're on the topic of sort of professionalism and social media and and things, 
I want to talk a bit about your safety when you're working out in the community because you've mentioned that sometimes you are going into patients' homes and you're often on your own. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, you're female, and um, all, it's important to make sure that you're best protecting yourself when you you put yourself in these situations. So, what what um, procedures do you have in place in your community trust to ensure you're safe Mm -hmm. Um, I think it is so important that all staff feel really really safe and supported when they're working Um, but as you've rightly mentioned obviously in community we are going into homes by ourselves Um, we're also doing things like our structured diabetes education groups sometimes run at night Um, so we may be in a venue where there isn't anybody else when it comes to the um, participants leaving so we do need to make sure we feel safe and supported Um, And I'm really fortunate that in our trust, they take that very seriously. Um, So there's lots of different things they have in place. We, as I said before, we're all on the same online system. So if any healthcare professional has gone to visit a patient and they feel there's something that we all need to be aware of before going to visit them, they will put that as a warning on that system and it will come up instantly. Um, So, for example, if a patient or a relative or a pet has been aggressive um, or if just the area is really poorly lit or something like that, um, and then we can make that decision whether we are visiting them at home or whether we're doing more phone input um, or if we want to visit in pairs rather than by ourselves. Um, So that's really helpful. Um, We also have in our team both written diaries in the office and online diaries. So all of us should know where all of us are at any given time so that again is really important Um, and we do always have someone in the office as our contact if we if we are worried or if we need to access support Um, the other thing that we have which is brilliant is all community staff have been given a lone worker device and so it essentially looks like a a big bulky usb stick that we put on the end of our lanyard um, and you can use that at any point if you need help Um, so you press a button and it you can have a two-way conversation with someone on the other end um, they can listen into what's going on and they can access emergency services straight away. Mm. Um, and it's got a GPS tracker on it, so they will know exactly where you are. Yeah. Um, but we can also, we've been encouraged to use that. You know, if you're walking to your car late at night and it's pitch black, you can use mm. it and just say, can you listen in while I'm walking to my car? So we can use it as much or little as we want, really, to feel safe. Yeah, um, that must give you a real sense of security, definitely, which is so yeah. important. Um, and it's, I mean, it's also used, or not used, but we can use it. If, for example, we are running an education group and we are in a building where no one else is and a patient has a hypo or something or there's, you know, some kind of a a medical emergency, again, we can use that as access to emergency services. So it is really good to know we have it. Definitely. Yeah. So um, I'm keen to hear now about what your biggest lesson learned has been since you've been working in the community as a dietitian. Yeah, I think the biggest lesson that I have learned in the last few years has just been accepting that dietetics is forever evolving and changing um, and that it's not the same as when I was at uni um, and that research is always coming out, evidence is always coming out, guidelines are always changing. Um, So that is the biggest lesson I've learned is to know that accept that and use that to keep on top of things like CPD. Also, just to accept that we cannot be 100% on top of absolutely everything 100% of the time, um, but do your best with it and also accept that sometimes there may be something that you're not as up to date with. So if a patient comes to you and asks you a question or makes a statement and you think that's wrong, maybe question actually, do I need to go and read up around that or look Mm. at the new research that's out there? Um, So be accepting that, you know, that's always changing and we should always be developing that knowledge. Yeah, I think that's a challenge to us all, the fact that the evidence base is just constantly evolving. And like you said, we don't have a lot of time to do CPD. And so staying on top of that is a a challenge. Definitely. And I think any little tip. So, for example, if you are in your car and you can listen to a podcast, if you always have one of the nutrition magazines in your bag for work and you've got a minute at lunch break to try and read through an article, it's anything at all. Um, and also share ideas with other colleagues so if we come across anything at all we will do a group email to the whole team so everyone learns from that Um, so we're trying to help everyone at the same time yeah and of course if people um, work from home then there's lots of social media groups like you mentioned earlier Facebook groups journal clubs where you can still engage with other dietitians whilst doing CPD at the same time definitely it's just trying to access all of that yeah and finding the time yeah (laughs) 
So um, just before we go on to our quickfire questions, do you have any advice to other dietitians, particularly student dietitians, who are really interested in working in the community? Yeah, I think if you are really interested, but maybe there's a little bit of uncertainty there or you're thinking, do I have enough experience? I'd say go and get that experience. So um, if you're a student, for example, and you've still got clinical placements, ask at your university that they put you on a community placement so you can go and get that experience. Um, and so as you have more to then talk about in any interviews that you may be having. Um, if you're maybe a qualified dietitian that's in acute and thinking, or in any other area, and then thinking I'd like to go into community, um, then maybe go on to something like a bank list and get a little bit of experience within a trust, um, or contact a local community team and see if you can just come in, meet the team, find out a bit more about what they do. Um, also, Things like volunteering to do any kind of group talks, so group talks for charities or organisations or schools or sports clubs, any ways of getting a bit more confident in public speaking is going to help with community work as well. Um, but go and get experience, that would be my main thing. And I guess from myself doing work with the Food Bank Age UK, it doesn't have to necessarily be directly with dietetics, it's just getting experience with working with people in the community. Yeah, I think that's very, very good advice, particularly for any students who are listening to this podcast. And just for a couple of final quickfire questions, what would you say has been your biggest achievement to date? It can be professionally or personally. Um, I think for myself, um, it would be that I got a first in my degree and my dissertation, which for me was a massive deal because at school I really struggled with science, really, really struggled with it. Um, and a long time, for a long time, I didn't think I'd actually get onto a dietetic course because I didn't necessarily have the right um, grades in the right subjects. So um, that was a massive thing for me. Um, and I think that's important for any people out there that are thinking they want to be dietitians, that they're thinking maybe it's, I'm not going to get onto the course. Actually, there are loads of different ways of accessing a dietetic degree. Um, and just because you don't necessarily like or click with science at school, when it's applied to a topic that you're really passionate about, it may, may work much better. Mm. Um, and also, as this podcast is highlighting, um, you don't have to go and work in research or in a lab or in one particular area. There's so many different areas within dietetics. So do persist with it. Um, so yeah, probably that. Um, but I've just signed up for a bike ride, which is London to Brighton. So hopefully that will that will take over. <laughs> That's soon. certainly going to be yeah a big physical challenge for the new year. Yeah, I'm dragging my boyfriend along, so he's doing it with me. <laughs> Some motivation. Um, and finally, we are of course in the Dietitian Cafe today, so we have to ask you what would be your last ever meal. Okay. I think it's probably the hardest question you've asked because I love my food so much. Um, but I'm going to go with Italian is my favourite cuisine. So I'm going to go with a bowl of homemade spaghetti or tagliatelle um, with a tomato sauce that's got lots of basil and garlic and chilli in it. Um, and if I'm in Italy at the time, outside in the sun, with a glass of wine, then that would be even better. <laughs> Perfect essence of the Mediterranean diet. Yeah, okay. exactly, exactly. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you very much for your time today, Alex. Oh, thank you so much. And thank you very much for our listeners for tuning in and join us for our next episode of Dietitian Cafe, which will be coming soon.